the best leaders I know recruit. They are thinking about what do I need 12 months from now and not what I need today. They are cultivating five, seven, 10 relationships in each of those buckets. They're thinking about like alternative places those people might live. Like one of the best leaders I worked with, like we'd be at like Madison Square Garden at a concert and he'd be trying to get the like person serving beers who was like exceptionally others oriented to come work for him. You know, it was like, you can't, these leaders can't turn it off, but it's like, it's a forever recruiting moment. Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, where being a high achiever doesn't necessarily equate to being an effective leader. Let's check to see if you're in the right place. If you're rising through the ranks of your organization so fast that your leadership skills need to grow as fast as your responsibilities, you're in the right place. If it seems you need different skills to lead your team or lead from within a group of talented, competitive peers, you're in the right place. If you're looking to become a trusted advisor to the CEO, you are definitely in the right place. So now that we know that you're in the right place, enjoy today's conversation. Before we begin, I have something for you. Have you not read Only Tens 2.0 yet? If you've been listening to the show, my guess is you have read it. Would you like to give away a copy to someone you care about, someone who's struggling with time and energy management? someone who needs to focus on the important things? Well, if you go to markjsilverman.com, click on the red resource buttons, we have put a free copy of Only Tens 2.0 for you to download, and you can upload it onto your electronic device of choice. I hope you enjoy. So one of my new pastimes and the ways that I waste time and procrastinate is I follow this guy called Chef Reactions on Instagram and Twitter. What he does is he goes on and he looks for cooking videos of other chefs, of other people, and he criticizes them. And he is hilarious. My favorite part about it is he'll say, uh, this is a zero out of 10. It's disgusting. And I would totally try it. Uh, He makes me laugh all the time. But every once in a while, he comes up with a chef who is amazing, who's better than him. And when he starts, he's like, oh, fuck me. I'm going to hate myself after I watch this video. And the guy, whoever is the woman or man, creates something spectacular. And he gives it a 25,000 out of 10. My guest is similar to that for me. Uh, I've been following Dave Klein now for a little while, and he's a, a leadership coach. He's created a leadership program. And I, I, I read his tweets. I read his articles on LinkedIn. And he's so good at what he does. And he's so sound in every tweet. If you just follow him for a day, you'll get more value than if you went to a business class uh, at, at a major university. So officially, he is an accomplished writer, advisor, and founder of the uh, Management Accelerator, a program dedicated to developing system-focused leaders. With over a decade of experience as the COO of multiple divisions at Bridgewater Associates, at Moody's Analytics, he's been leading teams for decades now, and now he's imparting that with you. Uh, Dave Klein, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. That is going to be, a, you just set a very, very high bar for the next hour. No, it's it's so funny because when I when I was when I was reading some of your tweets and I was going, oh fuck me, this is so good and so on point. I was like, oh, I'm just like that chef reaction guy. This is hilarious. And I'm like, you know, I teach my people. I want I want them to hire people who are better than them. I want them to train and promote, shed the spotlight on people who are better than them. Because if you can lead a team of people who are better than you, you're going. Your you know your career is going to be forever. Right? Would you agree with that? 
I totally agree with that. I was going to say partly why I loved being on the Rising Leader podcast is I'm 25 years plus into this. And I still feel like I'm a rising leader. Like you can always find someone who's doing something a little further down the path, a little bit better, a little more intentional, a little more systematic. And then there's people behind you and you can teach them. And so we're forever rising, I'm pretty sure. It's interesting. I was, I was interviewed on a podcast and, guy, and this guy asked me, you know, so you're writing the Rising Leader Handbook. What is writing the book teaching you? And I went, wow, what a great question. And when every time I write a book, like this idea comes to me that, you know, I do the research, I do what I need to do to write the book. And then life tells me that I have to up-level myself to the level of what I'm trying to teach other people. So life brings, so my, my level of leadership, just creating the course and writing this book, it has been confronted me over and over again so that I am a more powerful and more conscious leader than I was before. I'm curious, how did you, how did you, you know, you were a leader in a bunch of organizations, so I'm sure you mentored and coached and you got a lot of satisfaction out of that. How'd you shift over to now, this is what you actually do for a living? Yeah. I mean, I think probably we double clicked straight into Bridgewater. You know, it wasn't 10 years of uh, just promotion after promotion and high rising. Like, I think I was I was on the exit door threshold uh, about a year in and was really struggling. And, you know, I was leading a highly technical operations team, which wasn't really my background, but it was something I was trying to add to my repertoire. And uh, another leader sort of like plucked me out and was like, you should be the COO of this department. It seems more your more your bailiwick. And in doing that, it sort of revealed for me, like, what was my superpower and what wasn't it? Like, I wasn't going to outlogic some of the most logical people in the world. I wasn't going to be more data science savvy than these PhDs. Um, but what I could do was sort of break down complicated concepts in really practical ways and then patiently invest in developing other people. And so I, I sort of developed this internal reputation as um, a coach, a developer. Lots of people would ask me to mentor and that then transitioned into, we had a very um, a high, we invested a lot into leadership development. And so we built a lot of it in-house. Um, so I was participating in that. And then I was starting to lead some parts of that. So I got a lot of reps inside of the decade at Bridgewater. And then when we left, I really set out with two goals in mind. One was to buy a business and you know have a bit more of a lifestyle, like we'll have cash flow, you know, everything you read on Twitter, and then go pick one of the universities nearby and teach business. Um, it just felt like a great one-two punch, sort of the the where I wanted to be right now as my teenage kids sort of make their way through, sort of have that balance. And serendipity intervened to smash the two together. So Google changed its algorithm of the business we bought, and all of a sudden my business got cut in half a month after we bought it. We then is that set still, out is to that get skill scouter. Yeah, skill okay. scouter. So then we set out to get smart in social media. Um, the first course I took was with Saul Hill Bloom. He was quickly to be like, if you're going to write for your company, you're not going to go anywhere. You have to write for yourself. People want to connect with people. That's what puts the social and social media. And I thought, oh, shit, what am I going to write about? So I started everything. I'll write about online education. I'll write about music. I'll write about leadership, management, my kids, parenting. You know, My wife and I run this business together. And um, the leadership and management stuff took off. And that then led me to meeting the folks at Maven who were like, don't don't teach your class at a university nearby where you'll have like 20 people a year, like teach it on our platform and the world's your classroom. And so it felt like a pretty low risk stakes proposition. So we, we signed up, we tried it out. I sent out a tweet one night, went to bed, woke up with a 150 person waiting list mm. and was like, Oh man, we found it. Like we struck a chord. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be any good at teaching and this is going to work. And that was 15, 16 months ago. We've taught this now we're about to kick off our 13th cohort tomorrow um, with a private company. We've done some publicly, some private, and uh, 
It's been it's been a wild journey. You, you never you don't usually end up where you expected to. You start on a journey, you start taking the reps and making the steps, and then you end up where you end up. And it's usually much more interesting than what you had planned. Totally. The side hustle became the business and the business is now the side hustle. Like who would have guessed? Nice. Nice. So in in the, in your curriculum, one of the things that you talk about is how managers create value. And I, I love that because when, when my people get promoted to a certain level, and if they do a really good job of creating the teams under them, they often have a crisis of identity of like, what do I actually do here? So what do you mean by managers creating value? Well, I feel like this is such a great time to have this conversation because right now there's nobody more in the crosshairs than the mediocre middle manager, right? Like it feels like every other week, Mark Zuckerberg is just taking pot shots at these poor people. And I think we're lumping in two different sets of people. Like there are, I think if you still subscribe to the hundred year old industrial revolution, industrial revolution, command and control, you know, delegate all the crap, push it downhill, then like, yeah, he's right. Like get rid of those people. But there's a different version of that, which is much more the the intentional leader, the systematic leader, the the coach and developer, the one who can you know spot talent that is currently un unmotivated or in the wrong spot, get them in the right part of the field, and they blossom. You know that's one way to add value. The person who can go out and recruit the people that no one else is seeing. Like we at Bridgewater one time, we were trying to hire these more junior operators, and we found out there was a talent pool that was producers on Broadway. And we ended up hiring four or five of them, many of them who like run big groups now because they could deal with the pressures of deadlines every single night. And they could deal with these high ego people around them and they could orchestrate it all perfectly night after night after night and derive energy from it. And we're like, oh, that's what we do too. It's just not, you know, not for the arts, but it's for alpha. How'd you um, figure that out? Well, like who had the, who had the epiphany that that was a skill match? I don't totally know, but I know that with the way that we thought about recruiting, is I think the way a lot of companies think about hiring, you know, like for when you're, and I separate the two, like when you're, when you're hiring, you like put an order in, right? You're like, here's my basic job description, dear recruiter, go find me three people. I'll interview them and I'll pick. And the best leaders I know do not operate that way. The best leaders I know recruit. They are thinking about what do I need 12 months from now? And not what I need today. They are cultivating five, seven, 10 relationships in each of those buckets they're thinking about like alternative places those people might live. Like one of the best leaders I worked with, like we'd be at like Madison Square Garden at a concert and he'd be trying to get the like person serving beers who was like exceptionally others oriented to come work for him. You know, it was like, you can't, these leaders can't turn it off, but it's like, it's a forever recruiting moment. And then you sort of, their other thing they're really good at is, is deeply visualizing like what the work is, like what the job is. Like if you, if you go to the world of sports and the coaches we all admire, they have really clear systems, right? Phil Jackson in the triangle or what Steve Kerr's done at Golden State, um, what Sean McVay did with the Rams in his first five years. Like they have a clear system. They pick the pieces that amplify the system and the simple system amplifies them. And I think that's what we should be doing as leaders, right? That's another way you can add values to have a really clear system, culture, values, and connect that to the right humans who will get the most from that. We're sort of like they're the machine and the people come together to, to produce more than they would separately. Mm, brilliant. That, that's, that's interesting. I was, I was uh, having dinner the night before last and we were sitting at the bar eating dinner and I was watching one of the bartenders and there was just something different about him. There was a sharpness and there was a presence to him. And my immediate yeah. thought was uh, someone should, someone should pluck him out of here and give him an opportunity 
because like you could you could tell there was there was something behind his eyes that yeah. whatever he was given he would shine so and the beauty and the beauty of that mark is like you got to see him working mm-hmm. like i think one of the places we really fall down when we default back to hiring is you end up you're under pressure the the spot is open you're sort of taking the best talent available or whom you happen to have fumbled upon and in many cases the only real way you can assess that is an interview and we all know that interviews are like basically coin flips um you know versus when you see that bartender like you see him in his element you see how he like you said that presence that power how do they communicate how do they get things done how do they deal with crisis and so one of the things i'm always encouraging the leaders i work with is like can you figure out how to do that like that is part of the beauty of internships it's part of the beauty of starting with freelancers you know or having people come in for projects like can you can you even have them come in and just do work on a like a half day you know, throw them into the team and just say like, well, how's this going to go? It's great for them. Like, and pay them, like pay them for the half day, whatever. But it's great for them to truly try out like, yeah, I read what your company's values are on paper, but what is it like to work with you? And vice versa. Like you get to like put them on the field and say like, how does this work? Like, does this make us all better? Or is this going to, is this going to be a pretty expensive, you know, thing to recover in three months from now? And so everybody wins by figuring that out in four hours versus four months. I've been really enjoying Patrick Lencioni's six, six uh, working geniuses. And it's, you know, for me, it's really kind of helped me help my leaders take people who are cultural fits or attitude fits, but are in the yep. wrong position and helping them kind of shift things around. How do you have the, you know, how do you treat, teach people to have those conversations of, you know, you're not cutting it where you are, but you have these skills. How do you help them understand that this isn't a, a problem. It's actually you helping them. I think I got the most experience and most helpful framework for dealing with that at Bridgewater, actually. Um, we had this concept of separating people from design. Um, and so we we did it both on the way in and on the way out. So on the way in, you know, a lot of times leaders are very fuzzy about what it is they want, what it is they need. That same system we were just talking about there. It's like, they'll talk about it in very broad, vague terms. Like, oh, I want someone who's, you know, bias for action. And I want someone who has data experience of three to 10 years. And you're like, three to 10 years, like those are very different things. It comes from a place of like, they they tend to resist the precision because they don't want to shrink the market. But what they're forgetting is they don't need to hire 7,000 people. They seem to hire one. So you actually want to shrink the market very precisely so that you get a very high fidelity read. And so by having that really clear design, you're designing like the optimal thing for your system. And then you go assess people to fit into that design, right? And by separating the two, it becomes important it sort of hits you on the way out as well, which is I can end up with, like you said, someone who's a culture fit, a behavior fit, you know, deeply ambitious, but the competencies I needed in my role, in my design, it's just not clicking for them for whatever reason. I can then have an understanding of why not and look to a peer or a partner, someone else in the org and say like, wow, I can buy down a lot of risk from an outside hire because we already know this person fits here and we already know they're ambitious and we already know they're trying hard. And wow, look at, the way they don't fit into my team seems like they snap right into yours. Um, and so almost like as a culture, we held that. And so it, it actually saved us a lot of both money and hassle because getting people even in the door is a different risk profile than moving them around inside. I just had this conversation with uh, a managing partner of uh, one of my organizations. And we were talking about this one person who wasn't performing, wasn't performing, wasn't performing. But they're, they don't, they're enthusiastic and they, you know all these. And I said, what if they're just in the wrong place 
And we just, mm-hmm. that was just an offhanded comment and I didn't think anything of it. And then they're, now they're doing performance reviews again. And they mentioned a few other people. And then I said, you didn't mention so-and-so what's going on with that. I thought we were at the end of the six months and they're out. Yeah. And he said, Oh no, we moved them to this position. They're shining. They're doing great. They're doing amazing. And I'm like, Oh wow. They actually listened to me. That was, that was, that was pretty cool. And it was so nice to hear because it was really a cool person and to see them thriving, you know, cause they were in the wrong place. It's just, it's so satisfying when you can right. help someone along in their career. You know, I imagine the cautionary tale you give your leaders as well is uh, the caricature that I like to call the lovable B player. So they they check that culture fit. They probably are driven. Like it's like one of those ones where like the effort's not producing the outcome. They tend to be adored. Like they tend to be mm-hmm. the types of, per- you know, because they'll stay late, because they'll come early, because they'll pitch in. Um, they tend to have this like really strong bond within the team. But if you zoom out and say like, what does this organization really need? And does this person have the capabilities? The answer is pro- is no, right? You sort of, if you look at it ruthlessly, you can say no. And I think those are the ones where people get the same map you and I just laid out for moving around A players who will ignite in other organizations. I see a lot of managers use it to rationalize not having hard conversations, not making the hard decisions and pass around the lovable B player. Yes. Um, so that's like, that's the cautionary tale is like, can you tell the two apart? And then, and it's really hard to tell the two apart because, you know, everybody's worthwhile. Everybody has a skill someplace and how much time and resource do you put into finding, finding that place? So let's, let's, let's go right into feedback. Yeah. This one, this one is such a hard one to teach how to give good feedback. Uh, I had, um, Kim Scott on Radical Candor. We had a great conversation about it and everybody has a little bit different, you know, way of doing it. What's your, what's your, I, I think that feedback is, if it's not positive feedback, it's always a shit sandwich, no matter what acronym you put on it and no matter what order you put everything in, how do you come to uh, feedback? Interesting. I am allergic to shit sandwiches, so we can, we can debate that. I tend to uh, think let me fix that. If done wrong, it's always a shit sandwich. If done, oh, if, yeah. if done right, it's changed. That's, that's, that's what I meant. Got it. So I would say that the way that, I try to counsel my leaders is there's like a structural component and then there's literally like an execution component. So in the structural component, I, the two pieces I think are most important are consistency and like almost like intent. So for intent, you have to decide like as the giver of the feedback, I need you to be in a place of my intention is to improve the outcomes, is to help this person get better, is to, is to like raise the level of the team. If your intention, even temporarily, is to get something off your chest, to smack somebody mm-hmm. around, to like any of that, I'm mostly like I will trade timeliness for actually achieving the goal. So I'd say like pause, reflect, give yourself an hour, give yourself a day, like whatever you need to go back to the appropriate intention because this is emotional and this is what actually builds. Um, so one is get the intention right. Then I would say where I've seen it most effective in an organization, if you kind of study elite organizations in business, in sports, in the military, et cetera, is they're very consistent with their feedback. And they usually build a ritual for it, right? So if you're the Blue Angels flying 18 inches apart, Mm -hmm. they have an after-action debrief, right? If you're the SEALs, you sort of talk about every mission after the fact and break the whole thing down in a very candid, like, we could have gotten killed sort of way. You know, for Bridgewater, we had this idea of, of doing diagnosis sessions 
Um, lots of companies have retrospectives. Like there's there's tons of flavors of it. But can you build that ritual to ensure consistency? Because the good news about consistency is it leaves the lizard brain alone. Where people usually get tripped up on feedback is when you're coming at them in an erratic way. It's like, I haven't talked to you in three weeks and now I'm mm-hmm. pounding you. Um, and you've triggered them and they stopped hearing you after you like they felt attacked. And so you're back to the first thing, which is like, you're not going to achieve your goal anyways. Um, so we get intention and consistency. And then I basically give people a Mad Lib, which is um, when you blank, I experienced blank, which resulted in blank. And the blank, so like when you, and what you describe there is imagining a camera was recording the situation. And you are, it is, you have to sort of describe objectively what happened. Don't put any of your spin on it. Don't layer in your emotion. Just simply, you know, like when you gave that presentation yesterday, like facts, um, you know, I experienced, and this is where you get to own it because no one can tell you what you did or didn't experience, right? Mm-hmm. You, you wholly experienced that thing. Like I experienced you being dismissive to the crowd. Maybe you weren't dismissive. Maybe that wasn't your intention. I'm not even, I'm not trying to jump into your head and tell you what those things were. I'm just saying as an outsider, that's how I experienced it, you know, which resulted in, and the more that you can tie that to what your agreed business goals are, the, the more that we're talking again, back to that original intention, like we are trying to get better. So like that resulted in, you know, the sales deal not getting closed. Camera, my experience, the outcome. Um, and I find that that is super helpful for people, especially when they're in the constructive feedback side. People tend to be uh, much more receptive and you can be a little bit looser with your praise, but you should be balanced. And then the um, the last sort of cautionary tale in the Mad Lib, there's a fourth line. And this is what usually blows people up um, is because you blank. So you got through all of it. Like the camera saw the thing. I experienced it, the outcome. And then you say, because you're lazy or because you did that, you didn't prepare or because you and you undid all that beautiful work that you did. So if you find yourself wanting to say because you pause and simply ask them, you know, like, what do they think? What's their reaction? Why did, did, did they experience it similarly? Did they get other feedback like that from other people? Um, and you'll be shocked if you just like say your say those things and ask the question. A lot of times people are harder on themselves and you're on them. And if and if if you've all of a sudden have pulled them around to your side of the table and now we're staring at the experience together, you're now back in this coach mode. Right. You're back in like, a, oh, you're being harder on yourself and I was being on you. OK, great. So what do we want to do about it? You know, because you don't want to feel like that and I don't want to experience it that way again. So what do we do? That's such a good catch. I, I, and I think you started out really well. You have to do your own work first so that you're not bringing your own baggage into the conversation and you can be there for the other person. Yeah. At least what's coming to my head is like the nine lines at work by Buckingham. I'm forgetting his co-author. I apologize. But um, to talk a little bit about that thing, which is like so often most feedback is about the giver, not the receiver. It's like all of your lenses and experiences and mindsets and how you perceive the world. And so to then put that upon everybody else, it's just creates such a dissonance versus when you stay in terms of the things you experienced, no one can really debate that. And that's the only feedback that actually moves the needle. It's, it's, and it's such a good reason to have a coach or a mentor or a person at work that you can talk to first saying, you know, I'm coming at this charged. Would you just spend five minutes with me so I can work on that? So when I go give that feedback, I'm in the right place. Yeah. Um, you know, so never, never underestimate support. You know, being a human being, interacting with other human beings, if you're not supported, you're not going to do it right. It's a tough one. Uh, if you go, yeah. if you try and go it alone. My, my friend, Alyssa Cohen, who wrote from startup to grown up, uh, she says, you know, leadership is a learned skill, 
right? There are very few natural born leaders. Uh, so I, I love this idea that we can actually go get help from, from people, go to courses like you have. Last thing I'm going to ask about, because I went through your curriculum and I was, there's just so many things that I found fascinating. One of the things I, I, I try and help my clients with is teaching their people to get ahead of problems, go upstream, right? And I tell the story about the people in the, in the river, fall, drowning in the river, and then the guy runs upstream and stops them from falling in the river. And I was in Texas yeah. one day and someone says, you mean we're going to hunt arsonists instead of putting out fires? I said, I'm totally stealing that. That was the best thing. And that's one yeah. of the things that you teach in your curriculum is how do you teach your people to see problems before they happen so that you're not the one always you know, doing the backdrop? Yeah, we sort of put two different kind of pieces of machinery in place to do that. So one, which is actually, we already covered a bit, which is that retrospective concept, um, which, which is, it is looking back. So it's not the thing you're talking about, but because we diagnose to root cause, what you end up doing is going from the, the little surface symptom you had way down to the root. And what you end up finding is you end up solving 20 versions of the problem because you got to the root, mm -hmm. right? And so to some degree, you're both solving 20 problems you can see retrospectively, but you end up solving them proactively too. So I won't spend more time on that. But the other thing we do is this idea, um, I worked with this manager and he had this concept of overlapping nets. And what he would talk about is, you know, imagine you're trolling, you know, your fishing boat. And if I have a net and all the strings just go one way, you know, like I'll pick up a couple big things, but most of the stuff's going to go flying right through. And then the fishermen got smart and they put, they put strings this way. So they put a second check, right? And they started catching a lot more. And then they started doing them, you know, diagonally. And so this idea of, well, what is the right amount? You know, because you can go all the way to like then building a parachute and now your boat doesn't move and you don't catch anything. So it's like, I loved that metaphor because it's like, okay, well, what, based on my circumstance of the problems I'm trying to catch proactively, what are the, what are going to be the different strings in my overlapping nets and how many do I need? We talk a lot in the course about like, okay, first and foremost, like metrics, you know, if you have metrics that can sort of see problems before they come, you know, downstream, so to speak, like the better. And so it's not just backwards looking sales, it's more the predictive things further up in your funnel. It's the, it's some of the, the interaction models of software teams before they publish things. It's like, so do you have metrics on those things? Another, another net, you know, if I want to put another line on there, it's like, I want to ask people, like people underestimate the power of a survey, like survey your team. I think Amazon does like a pulse question every morning when someone logs in, like, how are you feeling? Or what are you working on? Or are you engaged? Or do you know the mission? Yeah. And it's not, not much of a tax, but all of a sudden they just generated like tens of thousands of data points to say, what corners in the organization do we have problems? Where are people drifting? Where are they unmoored? Where is a manager sort of checked out? And so I encourage people to do that. I'm working with a company right now that I advise and we're, we're building up this weekly check because all these problems were surfacing and, you know, they were putting, like you said, they were putting out the fires and I'm like, guys, but do you know what's causing all these things? Like you're just, you can't keep up with the things coming at you, much less do you know where it's like starting. And it was interesting. We flipped, we did a survey for two weeks. It was anonymous. We then made it not anonymous because we wanted people to stand by their, we, we wanted them to own the organization and their problems at their level. And so we asked them to like, can we go to non-anonymous? And, you know, mostly people agreed. And so we went to non-anonymous and then we started phrasing the questions in the positive instead of the negative. So the questions originally were like, you know, it, how terrible is this thing? <laughs> And then we started to rephrase them in terms of where we were trying to take the organization and have them discount it back from that. And what we're seeing is they are now more proactively solving problems because they're attached to them. They're trying to close the, they're seeing the problems at a bigger level because they see what good looks like versus where they are. So they go attack 
more proactively the gaps in that way. So there's this idea of like surveys. And then I would say if I was going to add a third string on my net, so if I've got good metrics and I've got a good pulse, you know, from surveys and I can put that data together, I am going to intentionally find a way to talk to people. And that's usually my third string and that's usually enough. And so when we were all in the office, that would be the occasional drop by the lunchroom, the walk back from a meeting. Uh, if you're remote or hybrid, you have to orchestrate it. Like that's probably the biggest pivot that people need to get their head around is like, we could kind of, I mean, I'm sure you experienced the same thing, Mark. Like we could be sloppy as managers if we were willing to be a little bit like flexible and charismatic. And when you spread people around the globe in different time zones and everyone behind a Zoom window, um, you no longer get to like make up for your consistency with charisma. You sort of have to actually be consistent, actually be systematic and orchestrate those interactions. Um, so that's that's partly what we teach is sort of like, how do you set up that system of those nets? And then that usually feeds into my one-on-ones, um, which are, are sort of in my mind, still the backbone of how do you lead people at really any level. Which, which is the common denominator in everything is what people don't understand when they step into people in positions of leadership is how much time it takes, how much actual time you have to spend in relationship with other people in order to lead them. Uh, because, you know, you, they, when you're being t- pulled in every different direction and your responsibilities are up and to, to the side and to your family and to everything, every minute you put into the relationship of the people that you're leading or leading with pays dividends exponentially, but it's hard to find that time. You, I mean, you said it perfectly. Like when I am talking to new leaders and they're already in the like, I'm overwhelmed, I'm stressed, I'm managing terribly. Uh, my first question is, well, tell me about who took all the work from your old role. And 80% of the time, they look at me like I'm crazy. And they're like, oh, I still have that work too. And I'm like this, you know, leading teams, like being responsible for the well-being of others it's it's not a task that is like something you add on. Like it is an identity. It is a full-time role. Like you must shed what you did before to create the space what you, for what you must do now. And companies don't help their people in that way. Like they don't really save them from themselves because they are sort of like, well, if I can get away with it, like if I can keep that work going and get someone to lead, right. like that'd be great. But that always comes back to roost in such a bad way. When I, when I first became a coach, that was probably the number one thing I did was get, you know, like pry people's hands off of the doing, right? And learning success through others. It was it was such an interesting thing for me because again, you know, you get your self-esteem from being better than everybody else. You get your self-esteem from doing things. I once I, you know, when when I teach only tens, you know, I used to be this only tens thing and mastering overwhelm is what I did. Yeah. Uh, when I got people out of overwhelm and they were sitting in their office with plenty of free time, right? It's like what am I supposed to do with myself? And I'm like, great. Now get out and walk around. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now go have some conversations right now that you're not overwhelmed and let's, let's see what you don't know. So it's an yeah. interesting, it's get an interesting out of the building, go, go meet with like other people in the industry or other people in your roles, go find a mastermind. Like the stimulus you can fill that with that is like you said, it is 10 X additive to the organization, but you have to create the space in order to, to do it. But to also understand that that's as valuable to your organization as what you were doing, right? More valuable. And you're the only one in a position to do it. Great. So um, amazing. Before we, before we turned on the mic, you said something about a stat that, you know, like like the way you said it was just such an open and shut case about the level of leaders failing. Uh, And I can't remember the way you said it when we first started talking. So there's, um, 
I've written about it a bunch. There's like three different studies. I think one is from um, one's from Corn Ferry, one's from Gardner, one's from McKinsey. So like three pretty legitimate um, organizations. Like these aren't some sort of thing you've never heard of in a Forbes article. Um, and they all sort of net out to whether you're talking about brand new managers all the way up to the C-suite. Um, the 18 month failure rate is around 60%. One of the, I think one of them puts it in a range of 50 to 60, but the other two put it squarely at 60. So you're like taking on a leadership role. You are worse than a coin flip that you will still be allowed to lead that team 18 months from now. Um, which is, a, it, it is honestly when people ask me, like, well, what's the mission? Why are you into this? I'm like, because there's things I can't reconcile and I want to go make sense of them. One of them is that it's like, okay, most of us fail. Then there's another stat which is like most people leave their jobs because primary reason is because they dislike their manager. And yet we know that in order to achieve more, to drive societal improvements, to give employment to people, we achieve more together than apart. And when we put people together, we need leaders. And I'm like, I believe that is why I, what I'm, what, you know, my wife, Mara and I are going to spend the next 20 years doing, which is like, can we, because we know this is so true, how do we knock those stats down? Like we both were so lucky to have um, a couple different leaders in our lives at the right moment to show us how good it could be. Right. To then also recognize how bad it can be and to not tolerate that, to know that it can, like you said, leadership can be learned. It can be taught. You can be given the cap the, the fundamental ability to lead intentionally, to to take what might be an 80 hour a job week and like short circuit that down into something manageable to unlock people to achieve more together. And so like, it's, an, it is, I, I get, I get amped talking about it. I start to like run ahead of myself because it's such a fertile market. Like you and I were joking about, we're sort of like co-opitators co in some way, you know, like we're kind of competitors, we're kind of um, cooperating, but like with a number like that, you could, you could have a full book, which you already have, and I could have a full book, which I already have, and we could even find ways to leverage ourselves and still never touch like one-tenth of 1% 1 of the 60% who are failing. And so I think it's like a shared mission I think we both have to like put a dent in that thing. It's it's amazing. And for me, for me, the, the, the other rail for that is the fact that people destroy themselves with the stress of it all. Yes. Uh, you know, I get, I'm really tired of the agreement we made to be in the 1% you know, to be in leadership and, and, you know, to not sleep, to not take care of ourselves, to have our families fall apart, to have our health fall apart. It's just not okay with me when, you know, you're giving it all you got in every area of your life and still coming up short. I just don't, I'm not okay with that. I've seen too many people just destroy themselves. So that's, that's my motivation, right? Is can we do this and can we thrive while we do this? And then can that thriving trickle down to the people who are in our, in our care? Yeah. I was here. I heard a podcast last night, and he's not really in our space, and yet indirectly he is. Um, Alex Ramosi, and he was talking about his building of acquisition.com. and really the the mission he's most attached to right now is building up companies with an operating system focused on praise and not pain. And despite me loving a good alliteration, I was like, yeah, that is. That is, I think, underlying. Like people will ask me, like, are you just teaching Bridgewater? And I was like, you know, I, I Bridgewater had a lot of it right, but I'm kind of teaching like Bridgewater with a heart that like mm. we can be hard charging, we can be systematic, we can be, I actually think being honest is actually more kind than withholding information. Like a lot of the things I took from there, but I also think we can double down on people's strengths. You know, we can like really amplify them. We can like drive them towards these things and like work, work some worthy mission. You know, like, I don't think it should be a, a four letter word um, in quite that way. 
And so I, I sort of, I, that really resonated with me. And I'm like, oh, I think that's sort of underpinning. I didn't have the language for that, but I, I've been thinking about it since I heard it yesterday. And I'm like, I think that's underpinning what I'm trying to do too. Like there is, there's a good way to do this. And I, I want to keep figuring out like, what is that operating system that I can gift people to do it that yeah. way? You know, good, good leadership saved my life when I was depressed and suicidal. They didn't know it. They didn't know what was going on. They just treated me in a certain way, which changed my life while I was going through something hard. Uh, yeah. And if you can have that effect on human beings, you know, leadership is such uh, uh, an honored role. So thank you for doing what you do. If people want more of you, uh, where can they find you besides all the social media handles that I'm going to give people for you so that they can follow you like I do? Um, I think the best place to find me is the MGMT playbook. Um, so we... I, I hesitated to call it a newsletter because I think of newsletters as like the optional bulletin you occasionally check out. And we try to write one practical play for high-performing team leaders every week. Uh, so we publish that on Wednesday. You can find that on, on all my... I have links to it from all my social um, accounts. Uh, that's probably the best place to have like a more in-depth conversation with us. And then we do run, like you said, we run a leadership program called the Management Accelerator. Uh, the next public cohort is in September. Uh, wait list is open. And if any... Leaders out there wanted to bring us in house. Um, we do run these for for leadership organizations within companies as well. So come find us. Brilliant! I'm so glad to make a, a new friend. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for saying yes. Appreciate it. Oh my gosh! Thank you for having me. This was great. I hopefully we get to do it again soon. To everybody else, thank you for hanging with us. Thank you for your time and attention. I love you a ton. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for joining today's conversation. If you got value, please share the episode, give us a thumbs up, write us a review. And if there's a topic you'd like us to cover or a question that you have, send them my way. Look forward to connecting on the next episode of the Rising Leader Podcast.